1: Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about instagram and theology beer camp so i've been getting more active on instagram and i just want to let you guys know in case you want to see me make some videos where i look directly into the camera i'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at instagram.com slash dan that's c-o-k-e and the link is in the show notes My guest this week is Ashley Davis Gavila, and I found her work when I was doing research around my own dissertation stuff. Now, I actually recorded this conversation with her before my conversation with Paula Swindle, and that episode aired a few weeks back, um, varieties of spiritual abuse or religious abuse, whatever whatever we called it. And that seemed like a better episode to go first because it was a bit more of kind of the, the background Information of the topic, and uh, Ashley, we it, we veer a bit more because her um, private practice that she has is uses some of that, but then does some other stuff too. And she is trained in semiotics, as she will talk about, and she brings that kind of symbolism, metaphor, storytelling to her work with clients. Uh, we're really interesting conversation. Uh, I assume most of you will have already listened to. Uh, The Dr. Swindle episode before this. If not, maybe go back and listen to that one first. It's about five or six episodes back. Uh, And just if you want, you could get a bit more of that kind of the the bare bones of the thing. Uh, But either way, this seemed like an episode well-timed for the holidays. Uh, We talk about the Bible. We talk about spiritual trauma. uh, Two things that may come up for a lot of us as we spend time with our families over holiday breaks. Um, it's also why I included the Mega church episode late last week as a second episode last week, because it also s- seemed kind of fitting for the season. So, okay. I don't have a whole lot else to say. Um, the conversation with Ashley speaks for herself. So let's just get into it. Ashley Davis Gavila. Thank you so much for joining me. We had this plan To do this in person, because you're here in Seattle, and uh, we were choking on wildfire smoke.
1: Completely choking.
0: And so we had to postpone it. And then now, on our day, it's raining and cold, and we are (laughs) fully into the Seattle fall. And so outdoors would be the only way to do it without masks, and it's just not worth it. So we are now in our own respective places, a mere handful of miles away from each other. (laughs) blown opportunity. Uh, COVID sucks, but thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad to be here and really excited for us to talk today.
0: Yeah. So, okay. I found you wrote a dissertation. Okay. You did, you did a theology degree, but you wrote this dissertation that if I'm honest, Ashley reads a lot more in certain sections, like a psychology dissertation and (laughs) Some of the keywords therein, whatever, is how I came across it. I came across it doing like a standard scholarly literature search. So the first thing I want to do is talk about that degree. Uh-huh. Why didn't you just get a psych degree? You are now, I'll describe you from your website, you are a trauma-informed life coach and you do spiritual care. Yes. So I know what those words mean. It reads like a <laughs> psychologist. How come you're not, how come your website doesn't just say psychologist or mental health
1: professional or whatever? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thank you for asking that because I think this is a really important delineation, especially right now as the topic of trauma is finally, finally getting addressed on a larger scale in our society. So yeah, I went into a doctor of ministry degree and I, at the time, was in a place in my life where I didn't think that I would necessarily need an income, (laughs) and um <laughs> thank you for laughing Sorry, with that's me that's
0: a um that's a great place to be by the way I hope you enjoyed however long um, the season it, was that you didn't think you would need an income <laughs> oh
1: I mean seriously so yeah um I was just in a very different place in life and yeah at the time it was really wild. Like, I just had this sense this one day that I needed to sit down and apply to this program. Leonard Sweet is a friend of mine, and he is the one who's the main mentor for this program over at the Portland Seminary. Nice. So the degree is in, uh, well, they've changed the name, but it's semiotics and future studies. A what, what does semiotics mean? <laughs> yeah. Semiotics is kind of the study of signs, symbols, and meaning. That's a really, really simplified. Yeah. But that's why you see so me talking so much about metaphor all the time because our entire lives are based on metaphor. There's great. some great books books out there yeah. about it. So I was like, oh, it's finally time. It's time for me to do this. And uh, it was my master's degree is in family life education, and um, so I'm all over the place. In case you haven't noticed, um, and so I was like, okay, it's time. And so I sat down, applied, got in, and this was right before the 2016 election. I was just seeing things happening that I was really troubled by. And at the time I was in an evangelical church and that was connected to the Southern Baptist denomination. And I mean, if you look at my, my LinkedIn, my resume, I have a really long history with the Southern Baptist convention. I'm no longer a part of it for several reasons, but yeah. So at the time I was like, okay, there's something happening. Like there is, there is, a stirring in the air spirit is on the move something is happening in a larger scale and so I felt like this was that direction I had considered doing um counseling psychology and I am a huge huge fan of therapy I am I I have friends that are therapists everyone go to therapy hear me saying it find a good therapist though um, because there's some kind of kind of scary ones out there but I was going into this I just, I just knew like spirit was moving. Like this is, this is the direction. And then uh, obviously we saw what happened in 2016 election. I'm hearing more and more stories of these women that are, I mean, I would say now they were being abused in these evangelical circles. Um, And that's a really, that's really strong language. And I don't use that lightly. And it breaks my heart to have to say it that way. And since then, so many stories have broken. When I was researching, I couldn't even keep up. There was so much happening. And then I got divorced unexpectedly halfway through my program. And that's its own story too. And my, uh, Oh, I'm going to cry. Um, I cry Aww. a lot. Just FYI. Um, my, <laughs> we'll, I'll just,
0: we'll just soldier through then. I can- <laughs> we will.
1: <laughs> I think it's great. Um, I'm no an shame. Enneagram for yeah, It's just, yeah. Um, so I was like completely bolstered and held up by my cohort. I would not have made it through. Like, I'm sorry, but who completes a dissertation as a single mom? Like what? But, yeah. By, by the grace of God. I mean, so, and, and with the support of my people. And so I have no qualms about the degree that I got. I'm deeply in student debt. I, <laughs> you know, I've since remarried. Yeah. And, you know, we are just in full 2020 COVID mode where it's like, okay, do we have money for groceries this week? Yes, we're good to go. Um, and wow. so, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that this, this was just my path. And I'm I don't regret it. And I'm so glad that I did it. It does not make sense from a fiscal standpoint to have this degree. But I believe so much in it.
0: Well, I do. I want to say a couple things. Number one, I agree with you your language is spirit is on the move. And the way I would phrase that is a, a pretty wide scale shift is happening it is. Uh, in our public religious consciousness. And, you know, I think that Trump and the evangelical marriage with him is both a symptom and a cause, uh, an accelerant cause to that shift in the States anyway. So that's number one. Number two, uh, because of that, it's all hands on deck. It takes all -hmm. kinds. There aren't enough therapists probably to even handle that shift. So, you know, and then thirdly, if you detect and number two, a bit of a hierarchical thing. Yeah. Uh, let me explain that. And I, this is no shade on you. And we spoke about this beforehand, yeah. just to be clear. <laughs> you know, if you just had a bunch of websites of licensed psychologists and and life coaches, there's a difference on the yes. aggregate. There is a lot more organizational accountability yes. for licensed mental health folks than mm-hmm. there are for life coaching. Uh, it's not the same kind of rigorous training process, for the actual client work. That being said, you know, you can have a great life coach. I would very happily go to you as a life coach, for instance, knowing, having read your dissertation, knowing a bit about you, right? Um, But it's just something to be more cautious about in general. I just want to make sure I sort of even have a a kind of professional obligation to say something like that, given my training. But It's not gonna affect our conversation today. Yeah. And I don't
1: and and if I can just chime in and say that I agree with that completely. And especially right now the world of health and wellness is also really growing. And white supremacy is everywhere. And we see are seeing that a lot in the wellness space. So there we, we have to be really careful. Someone like me. If I wanted to, I could do whatever I want as a life coach. There is absolutely no oversight or accountability. I've built that in for myself because awesome. I believe very strongly because you're right. And maybe someday, like as a result of this shift, I would love to see some kind of some some more accountability. But when we look at like um, indigenous healing practices, yeah. there's embedded accountability into the societal fabric there we have so much to learn um, and not co-opt <laughs> not steal and colonize
0: right right
1: but actually take the lead there and so that that might be another another topic for another time but I think that there are there are some weaknesses in psychology and mental health space that hopefully will be eventually be addressed um, blind
0: spots in every major yeah, yeah there, of course, there are of course but
1: for folks that are looking for a life coach, Please, please, please find somebody who is very transparent from from jump about the dynamic because you're entering into a power differential, whether or not you know it, especially if spiritual care is going to be a part of the work, really... Do your homework on on these folks, and if they're professionals, they will not mind that at all. And if you come to me, question me, ask me, like, what, why should I work with you? That's totally appropriate. We have that's to great. go in with eyes wide open right now.
0: Yep, that's great. Okay, so we are actually going to use the fact that you had this circuitous route, this more theologically, scripturally minded degree, uh, because you're gonna, you have a different uh, angle on this stuff than other people that I will be talking to in the ne- in the coming months about spiritual and religious abuse. So for our purposes, it's going to be fantastic. I'm um, so happy. Now, one thing, I, I am like knee deep in the literature, uh, researching for my own dissertation right now. And one of the first things you notice about the spiritual and religious trauma slash abuse language or literature is that there is no agreed upon definition. There are something like seven or eight that have been offered and uh, the community has not gathered around any of them. So I just want to ask you quickly, what is the definition that you like most that you're sort of operating on when you're talking about spiritual or religious trauma?
1: Yeah, these definitions are so important. My sort of working definition right now is that all abuse is spiritual because it targets our sense of identity, purpose, and meaning.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So this is actually similar to... Doug Shirley, former guest, uh, his sort of definition of religious and spirituality or religion and spirituality. So spirituality is that kind of meaning making that that drive towards transcendence that all people have that bo- were born with it. It doesn't go away unless something happens. Religion is a codification of that drive into some particular thing. So you're not really think you're not really talking about religious abuse in that sense where it. It has to do with the church context, and it, it has to be that some definitions say it needs to be perpetrated by a religious figure of some kind or whatever. You're, that's not really your space. You're talking about – it's it's more like spiritual abuse is, for you, a facet of almost any kind of abuse that affects one's ability to sort of seek God, the transcendent, et cetera. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and I mean it it definitely – we see it the most in religious circles and the, the power structure within churches, I do talk a lot about, so it's kind of a both and, okay. but spiritual abuse doesn't because it's so insidious. It's so tricky. You don't, you can be spiritually abused by your parents or your Bible study leader or your therapist. Like it's, it's kind of just it can be anywhere and i don't want to be like all ooh like boogeyman about it. But yeah. It's true though like that it can happen in many many contexts.
0: Well, and the the more widely we define spirituality, the more it just will naturally follow that the more types of abuse will count as spiritual abuse as affecting the spiritual aspect of ourselves, right? Yes. So that is there's just a, a cost and benefit to to th- that definition, but maybe give us a, a couple examples. So, from people you've known, or clients you've had, or whatever, just you know, really quickly, some examples of this kind of spiritual abuse you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So one of the examples that is, I, I've got more than one person in my life who has experienced this. Is they're in a marriage where there has been emotional abuse. Maybe they haven't been hit yet. He hasn't hit me yet. Like that. We're, we're kind of, but we're to right. that It's place, not quite you know what I mean?
0: physical abuse. Right.
1: And they go to their pastor, usually a male, but not always. And they're told, well, have you tried this? Have you looked at it this way? They, they have no understanding of a trauma bond. There's no education around trauma bonds typically. So, they don't understand why people stay in these dynamics. They don't understand that it's a matter of survival. And a lot of times, by the time these women have gone to the pastor, things are pretty rough. They're pretty yeah,
0: bad. Yeah, right, exactly.
1: So, then they get this advice of, well, like maybe go to counseling together. Sometimes that works. But sometimes, if that spouse is really narcissistic, they can fool over a counselor that doesn't understand narcissistic traits and abuse. Right. So here we are. We're now in this especially, situation especially <laughs> by the
0: way if it's not a clinical licensed mental health therapist yes. and it's like a noetic counselor or a biblical counselor Correct. or something like that who who actually doesn't have training in psychopathy in narcissism and stuff like that. Correct.
1: Yes, exactly. So we're in this situation now where this woman who needs Helping somebody to walk alongside her, getting this really terrible advice that is keeping her in an abusive situation, and like it's it's happened in so many times. I've got so many folks that have told me this story, and so they're told, "Well, have you tried praying about it? Have you tried this, that, or the other?" They get all this advice, and then when finally they do end up leaving the abusive situation, they're the ones that are kicked out, ostracized, right. from from the fellowship.
0: Yeah, so. In that example, I would, if I'm kind of operating with your definition here, I would say there's a there's both a religious trauma and a spiritual trauma. The particularly yes. religious stuff is around the fact that scripture is used, prayer is used. It sounds like we can infer some sort of headship model, mm-hmm. both in the family, a husband is the head of the wife and pastor is the head of the whatever. Of course, mm-hmm. you could imagine this happening at like a, a four square church or something where you didn't have that, but... Often there would be that element to it. The, and then the ostracization from the religious group. One of the things I'm focusing on in my dissertation is one of the pernicious things about uh, religious or spiritual abuse is that it precludes people from using a evidence-based source of healing, which is religious community. That yes. is like very well documented as a way that people hear from heal from serious traumas. So it's mm-hmm. both harming someone and precluding (laughs) their using that community for healing, which would work in most cases or, you know, statistically, right? Yes. So that's the, I would call that religious trauma as well as then, of course, that is going to affect this woman's ability to pursue God uh, in any sort of meaningful sense, because God is also tied up with the religious community. And so, if we wanted to separate those religion and spiritual out, we can, we could look at the two different threads of abuse and trauma there.
1: I would agree with that. Yeah. That's a great point. There are some things that are unique when it's within this religious system. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So give it, let's get one more example. Just uh, so maybe a male, you know, Mm -hmm. let's mix it up. Mm
1: -hmm. So this example that's coming to mind is this man struggled with addiction and a lot of trauma and self-medicating. And he was able to get some help and went to rehab and got sober, came back to the church, and was now the poster child for success of that church. Oh, Oh, look at how we helped him. Look at how we did this. So he is now tokenized and, oh, here, let's put him in charge of our Celebrate Recovery or whatever. And and then down the line, when he's looking around going like, okay, wait a second, <laughs> I'm being used here. I'm being, you know, all, all this entire dynamic is kind of gross. <laughs> um, and so then when he's ready to kind of exit, he, you know, is asking leadership, hey, can I get some more support around this? Because I mean, I, th- this just isn't right for me to be held up this way and tokenized. And then, mm-hmm here it comes all of the, the gaslighting and uh, well, you know, we really, we, we paid for that rehab. And so we need you to step up your, your ministry here. And uh, do you see what I mean? Like, Oh, I get, I get so creeped out by this. And, and again, this isn't uncommon. This isn't uncommon. No.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I have a story. I'm trying to figure out how to incorporate it. Maybe I will do it as a standalone mini episode or as a patron thing, but uh, a a very good friend of mine growing up, his, his mom had been in a horrendous, uh, you know, a a prop plane, a small plane propeller accident and her arm is uh, quite disfigured and um, she survived it. And, but, but her, when I asked her about the spiritual trauma of it, she described Uh, She grew up in L.A. and being in the Crystal Cathedral in front of like thousands of men and stuff like staring at her, her story being this like – she was – turned. like her dad wrote a book about it uh, and it was just like she was turned into this phenomenon rather than a person uh, at a developmentally inappropriate age, right? And so uh, that's like not the angle I thought she was going to take, right? But now it really reminds me of the story you told. I want to throw one more out there. There is uh, pretty good evidence from what I can tell in the literature that when people's religious identity clashes with their sexual identity. So in this case, let's just say gay or lesbian. That's the most straightforward situation. Now, that's that is as far as I understand it. That's a conflict that's going to have to be resolved uh, yeah. to, to be to come into that moment with that conflict is not at, at that moment. Not anybody's fault. Uh, there is a set of religious teachings. There are all kinds of sets of religious teachings in the world. Uh, many of them include these prohibitions against, you know, same-sex interaction and stuff like that. But now we've got a sort of splitting situation. And now what are we – let's say this this person goes to the pastor or an elder or a Bible study leader or something. Well, now we've got a decision to make. And so you, there's a, many forks in that road and one of the forks that would be an, an appropriate way to go would be to say, you know what, Johnny, uh, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know why the gay kid is Johnny, but, you know, our church holds this view and this is going to be rough for you, but we're not the only type of church in America or in the world. And I've spoken with some people who have different views on this topic here's someone if you'd like to reach out to them here's a book you might check out telling you the truth i don't know that it will work for you to stay in this church but we're not the only church that's a ro- that's a possible road to take uh that is not often the road that is taken right and so uh mm-hmm. you then end up with like a lot of stuff around our way or the highway or the the bible is clear or you know mm-hmm. whatever and now we're using the authority of our denomination to then preclude options for you to work this out, work your, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Which is another biblical directive. So that's another example. I don't know. I don't know if you've had clients that have uh, worked around that issue. Obviously, it's a it's a, a fairly small percentage of the population. But if you had anything to add to that third kind of category, I'd be interested to hear it.
1: Yeah. The so scripture often can be weaponized. You can use it as a tool. <laughs> you can use scripture as a tool for better or for worse. And that's something that I've seen time and time again with my clients where there has been a twisting of perfectly wonderful, beautiful scripture. And one little bit of it is taken out of context and entire belief system is built around it. And what you seek, you will find. Let's let's be honest about this. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You, you can go to the scripture and find um, just about whatever you want to uh, proof text your opinion.
0: Especially the further out you get from sort of very central claims like love or, you right. know, Christ is raised from the dead, right? Yeah. The further out you go, <laughs> well, here's where gay stuff comes from, you know, like, yeah. Well, scripture is clear that if a father for, you know, doesn't do his, you know, no, 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 no. The Bible does not explain homosexual orientation. It doesn't give us that explanation.
1: Yeah. It's like if, oh, there's the scripture is great because um, scripture is great. (laughs) Like it's. I'm going to say say something
0: controversial here. (laughs) Scripture is pretty great.
1: (laughs) It's pretty awesome yeah um like so we have both, both the universal and the particular and both and both universal and universal and particular are true at the same time and i love paradox and i love that there's this larger narrative of scripture that is what we miss so often and that is a pattern in the toxic theology of white evangelicalism that there's the nitpicking there's this Versa versitis, I think is what lens calls it. Oh, that's good. And again, like here's such an, another beautiful opportunity for us, uh, especially um, as white people to stop and listen to marginalized communities and how they read scripture. I can't tell you for, for my own perspective in my own life, how freeing it has been to spend the last year or so Almost exclusively listening to teaching from Black and Indigenous teachers.
0: Yeah, the the basically liberation muharista and other other yeah. um, so called contextual theologies. Right? Yeah,
1: and and I mean even with with my ministry degree, I don't always know all of the the technical terms for it. That's
0: fine. Yeah, but
1: like there's something in the the poetic and prophetic nature that is so beautiful and. I may not agree on all the finer points of it, but sure. like, and I know again, we're kind of getting into this really, I, I can't get this off of my mind. This, mm. where we're at in our society now today, two days after the Brianna Taylor's Extremely black,
0: disappointing Breonna even, Taylor like, news. Yeah, it's, this, we're recording this on September 25th. Yeah, yeah.
1: it's <laughs> the only response to that is total and utter heartbreak where somebody's wall gets justice before, A life gets justice. Um, So this is real life. These are people's lives we're talking about. Scripture, toxic theology, patriarchy, white supremacy. These are things that affect people on a daily basis. And that um, when we use the Bible to prop up these broken and abusive systems, I don't know any other way to respond to that but with total and complete heartbreak.
0: Yeah. And well, that's actually an interesting angle on the scripture question. I mean, I, I really appreciate you. I know you warned me about your crying and all that, but <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. no, I think it's fantastic <laughs> in terms of like, I, I hear, I think we can hear where you're at. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. this would be an example. Let's say someone uh, acted this way in a Bible study or in, in a more conservative uh, church context. And and what would they be met with? The mm-hmm. um, Now you'd hope that what they might be met with is something like, Ashley, thank you for being so honest with us about what you're going through. The Bible is actually full of lament of injustice. Yes. And in fact, it's usually coming from the authors of the text, which are marginalized groups. Yes. Under under empire, under other forces that do not seek uh, you know, their best th- their best lives or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh I that's not always how you would be responded to in those situations. (laughs) No, it might be like some sort of Band-Aid scriptural verse Band-Aid to say, well, God works out all things for good, Ashley, you know, and so that Mm -hmm. would be an example of a uh, that's potentially spiritually abusive there. You've got someone really connecting to their their faith and grieving injustice. What You know, even if people can disagree about what specifically is unjust in these situations? Cause there are different views, but the fact of the matter is like, we have a system where no one is charged for killing this woman who yeah. they didn't even continue the drug investigation. They like dropped it. Right. Like, so it, however you want to parse it. And you know, I have friends who are lawyers and cops and there's different perspectives. But I'm talking about the emotional moment of being with a person who ostensibly shares your faith and who is uncomfortable with you lamenting mm-hmm. in a pretty f-ing biblical way, right? Uh, and okay, I'm getting a little fired up here. I'll I'll stop talking and let you respond.
1: <laughs> no, I'm loving it. I'm loving it because it's so true. Um, this is the time. This is the time. If not now, when? If not us, who? This is this is where the rubber meets the road. This is it. This is the time. This is the time to weep with those who weep. Yeah. And to rejoice with those who rejoice. And the these communities who've been completely mar- like marginalized is like too nice a word. Oppressed is almost too nice a word. Like they've been abused for hundreds of years and, and in the
0: case of native americans you know Ugh. more or less decimated
1: decimated as well. robbed yeah. and they're still here and they're still going strong and there are right. amazing amazing if you want to talk about oh okay <laughs> if we want to tie this in to post-traumatic growth let's do it and resilience can we do that because if you want to yes. talk about human resilience and the beauty of the imago day <laughs> here we go again in people who are um the, the perfect, perfect image of God in this and resilience. Yes. It is the black and indigenous communities in this country. Um, I'm, uh, I I almost don't have words because it's just that emotion. And if I could like send that emotion through the sound waves to everybody listening to this, <laughs> I would do that because that's where it's going to have to start happening. Our hearts need to break. And I know that that is happening there. There are more and more hearts breaking, but when we look at Jesus response to Uh, oppression, to abuse. Those are the verses where we see that he groaned in his spirit. And we can't be afraid anymore of these quote-unquote negative emotions. We've got to learn, especially as white folk, to become, not to be comfortable, to be comfortable with being uncomfortable (laughs) in these conversations that have to be happening. And All of this ties together. When we're talking about spiritual and religious trauma, you're going to have to have really uncomfortable conversations. It just has to happen. And you're going to see a lot of anger. You're going to see a lot of crying, a lot of hurt. And we need to just be... Find a way to be okay with that. And I think people get so threatened, so threatened by uh, any emotional response. And to be fair, like there are some people who weaponize their emotional responses and can manipulate through tears, can manipulate through, um, I mean, obviously anger is an easy one to manipulate through, but there, these are holy, holy, sacred emotions and experiences that are universal. And when we cut ourselves off from that, we're we're cutting ourselves off, I feel, from the heart of God. And the more that we can learn to sit with discomfort, I think we will grow through that. We grow through learning to sit with discomfort.
0: So I'm going to put a pin in resiliency and looking to the experience of non-white Christian thinkers, you know, poets, et cetera. Be- I'm going to save that for the end, because at the end, we're going to talk about going forward, Yeah, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, yes. But I do want to stick with scripture here, because yeah. I'm going to be doing, as I said, many interviews with people who are varying levels of expert on this topic of religious and spiritual trauma and abuse. But your dissertation, because of the degree you got, focuses a lot more on the Bible and on scriptural metaphors and uh, and straight theology. You talk about the Trinity as well quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that is unique to your work, and I want to spend some time there. Yeah. So before we take a, a little mid, mid-chat break, let's talk a little bit more about Scripture. You talk about a, uh, attachment to God, and mm-hmm. attachment theory is something that's come up a little bit on this podcast. I'll just really briefly summarize it as— It is uh, arguably the most important finding about child development in the last 50 to 100 years. It's the you've probably heard of it before. Oh, that kid's got great attachment or insecure attachment or whatever. It's the idea that especially up through about two years of age, uh, children need a secure attachment figure. Usually this is the mother and or father, but it can be an older sibling or an aunt or uncle or grandma uh, or another caretaker. And it predicts, you know, basic life success more than any other factor that I'm aware of in any of the research. And so it's a fundamentally human thing. And if it's a fundamentally human thing, if it goes that deep, we would actually expect it to show up Mm -hmm. in something like Scripture. And uh, you say it does. So where do you see (laughs) that attachment model showing up in the Bible?
1: Anytime you see a reference to God in a capacity of provision, safety, nurturing. That is the language of attachment.
0: Fantastic. Yep.
1: So it's hard to, I would say it's hard to find a book of the Bible where we don't see God as an attachment figure. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. There's it's again, what do we seek? If we're seeking attachment in scripture, we will find it there. And so we see it all throughout the first and second testaments. And uh, a, another theme that I tend to see is that it's the spirit of God that attaches us. It's what invites us into perichoresis, the divine dance. And we get to participate as not necessarily as equals. I, I do think that the Trinity is the one place where hierarchy is. <laughs> not that there's hierarchy within the Trinity, but that we are subcontractors. We're sub. Creators, co-creators, right, you know,
0: right, yes. um, but 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 uh, interestingly and importantly for Christian theology, that is what. Uh, so yeah, Christian theology has a hierarchy between God and creature, but God becomes creature to not 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 totally obliterate the hierarchy. It'd be impossible. I'm not the kind of being that can create a universe, for instance, right? yeah uh, but Jesus in fleshing God is like the is the most hierarchy dismantling or softening move yeah. almost imaginable right yeah
1: yeah yeah it's yeah god entering into this dimension of creation yeah oh that was a really beautiful way of saying that <laughs> um, <laughs> i
0: appreciate it. It, it thank you love
1: it so yeah i mean scripture is just full of this of this idea and I would just invite everyone to, you know, if if the Bible isn't currently triggering for you, to revisit, uh, especially the Psalms through an attachment kind of lens, because we see it a lot in David's Psalms, and then in the New Testament we see this phrase in Christ, yeah, like ninety times in eighty-seven verses in the NASB. So uh, I'd say this is a pretty important thematic element. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so how do you unpack and understand that phrase uh, in Christ, which is all over Paul?
1: Yeah. To me, this is, I mean, this is obviously the language of attachment. This is the language of Trinity. This is the language of divine dance, of being a part of something larger than ourselves. It's a relational position.
0: I think of the term grafting on.
1: Yeah. And and that's especially
0: powerful. I think it especially applies to Paul's theology because Mm -hmm. his his basic move is, Oh, this is not just for the Jews. Right. This is not just for the right. Israelites. And, and then I think now, 2,000 years later, and I think inherent in Paul's writing, but especially in Christ's teaching and his actions, is actually that grafting is universal. It's, mm. it's like mm. it's already available to everyone by virtue of being a human being created yes. in God's image, and we are to wake up to that fact. The kingdom of God is already within us. Mm. Uh, you know, We don't have to do anything. That's the Christian idea of grace. Of course, it doesn't end there, right? But but awakening to our status as beloved creatures already grafted Mm -hmm. on, just God's just waiting for us to respond to God. Yes,
1: yes, and I think that that's a really important distinction because otherwise we can devolve into the duality of us versus them, in or out. You know that um, that can (laughs) kind of derail the whole point of being in Christ. Psychologically,
0: uh, I apologize for cutting in here. You're just, you're getting into my wheelhouse right now where my brain has been. Psychologically, I would describe that as the fundamental tension of religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I am not a person who currently believes we can just do spirituality without religion of some form. I just, I don't, I don't think that the evidence shows yet that it works for people. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I, I'm open to that in the future, but there's something about in-group membership that provides real benefits to people. There, yeah. This is go, going in the dissertation of the evidence of healing from trauma, of in-group identification and being able to spread out one's needs, yes. one's storytelling, narrative, mm. you know, whatever a, around the group and having parts of your own story be held by other people. Yes. So right?
1: important, Yes.
0: And yet on the other end of that is <laughs> to the extent that this is an in group, that means that there are others that are not in the group. yeah. Uh, and Christ, I think was always pushing that um, mm-hmm. the, the universality of it all. So the ideal combo is I'm in this group, this group, we have some fundamental characteristics that define us some common goals or whatever. And one of those is that anybody is in theory, welcome at least yes. or something, but, yes. uh, but this is yeah. a pretty clunky solution. I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't want to make it sound like I have a solution. I don't, I think that this is the fundamental tension with yeah. religion is that it both, it binds and blinds to use yes. uh, Jonathan Heights language.
1: That's beautiful. Yes, because we're, we're wounded within community, but we're healed within community. hmm we absolutely Porges is the uh, founder of polyvagal theory, which is kind of my, my new thing that I'm reading up on as much okay, as I, I haven't can. I've heard of this. And um, yeah. Oh, you got to look into some polyvagal theory. This is good stuff. And I, I've heard this quote attributed to both him and other people, but it, either way, it's brilliant that we're wired as humans. We're wired for connection, but trauma rewires us for protection. And, the trauma responses that we naturally have that God created us with our fight, flight, freeze, appease or fawn responses are there to protect us. And so when we're traumatized and we're going through life in this state of survival, you know, I, I, I like that it sort of gives a, a, a kinder approach to it because trauma and those responses can often really isolate us and we need community. And yeah. this is where the church has a huge opportunity, but it's going to have to rebrand. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have; it's got to be rebuilt from the ground up in Oof. order for it to be effective. And it all is going to come down to this, and and that's why I keep saying, "I'm this is it. This is the time. We have to do this now. That we need to reimagine what." the body of christ can look like because also we're we're not able to gather together in the traditional ways that we would like to well
0: that's that's an interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. wrinkle yeah right
1: so but but why should that stop us and i'm not saying go oh uh. gathering together can look dif- different and you right. can do it virtually there's lots of ways to do that that are still safe but the the body of christ is transcendent when we are a part of the body of Christ, we're not just joining a local expression of that. We are joining in a, almost on a cosmic scale, the great cloud of witnesses, the, 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 our ancestors, the, the great people of the faith, um, the ones that maybe we don't know their names even. We're entering into this enormous uh, family that transcends space and time. And yeah. it's, yeah. it's again, coming back to both the universal and the particular. And again, coming back to the scriptural aspect of it, it's not necessarily even reinventing the wheel. If we uh, look at how things were working in the early church in the book of Acts, it was
0: I like where you're going now, <laughs> you know? because I was, I was going to say, I might be a little more lowercase C conservative than you in terms of the, the solution. Cause I, I tend to believe that like. Wisdom traditions, uh, which is one way of thinking about religious traditions, have figured a lot of things out, right? There's, like a, there's quite a bit of, um, I don't know, uh, proof in the pudding, so to speak, I guess. Like mm-hmm. There's a, a quite a sorting process over thousands of years. And one way of thinking of wisdom is it's the kind of stuff that has tended to work in multiple scenarios for multiple people over time yep uh, and and you're unlikely in any given situation to beat your wisdom tradition on any particular issue because you just don't have the resources that it has had filtered through time. But as you point out, the current model of church, you know or and et cetera is not the only model. It's not the only nope. experience we've had and throughout nope. uh, it's not in it's not really in the text, it's not in Acts. Uh, and it hasn't been the only model in in Western history either, right? It's it's yeah,
1: and yeah. especially
0: you know the the particular kind of evangelical thing is a pretty American version, right. Of yep. older stuff, and but it's now being exported all over the world to pretty great mm. effect in these industrializing countries, and that's its own topic. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it may be a kind of an inevitable thing that goes along with late stage capitalism. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. a that's probably not something that you and I can. Solve today. Yeah,
1: that's above my pay grade, but I'm still. I think it's important for us all to think about because it affects not only us but our society. Totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To be on the lookout for fresh ideas. Yeah. Um, Or even just if your church, you know, your own church that you already go to and have some issues with is like, we're gonna try this thing. Like that might be the time to really support that church, right? Like I don't know. Uh, There's a lot of applications, right? It's not. It's not just naive optimism or nihilism. There's That's a lot right. in the middle.
1: That's right. There so is. There are, that you always have options. And especially when it comes to being a part of the body of Christ. So, so the metaphor that I really spend a lot of time with in my dissertation is the, the vine and the branches out of John 15. But another kind of, and this is fresh, I haven't really worked this one out yet. And, and the thing I will say about metaphor is metaphors break down eventually the metaphor will break down. If it doesn't, then you have yourself an idol. And uh, so metaphors are going to be imperfect, but metaphors are very powerful to me, the best way to try to describe what (laughs) a metaphor is just that. I'm describing what this thing is by comparing it to something else or using this story. Anyways, all that to say, I'm wondering if we could sort of look at the body of Christ in a new way, in, through a, a new metaphor, that instead of maybe a vine and branches, because that was a really um, agriculture-heavy society, that, that metaphor right. was, what if we looked at the body of Christ as like systems within, and I'm using system like as uh, in more of a medical sense, what if the body of Christ is a circulatory system And like Christ is the heart Mm. and the spirit of God is the blood and we're the veins and vessels. Oh, I love this. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, um, this is the time for us to get a little more creative and it's not, you know, it's not difficult, but it does, it takes a little bit of a shift in our thinking away from this very technical left brain kind of dualistic thinking and moving more into this more creative mindset that, maybe more indigenous or uh, story-based and image-based.
0: I am the heart. You are the capillaries.
1: Right? There you go. Like exactly. Trademark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Heard it here first, folks.
0: As you may know, there is a group of patrons who support this podcast financially. Uh, the most recent um, uh, actually, I should say upcoming, in the next couple days here, episode exclusive to patrons is a fantastic conversation with Sandy Northington, and it's about her story of how I was thinking about how to, how to describe this. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, marital issues, divorce, purity culture is in the mix. Um, just really, really, uh, kind of a rough story that she went through. Um, but then she's also used that to learn about herself and about those kinds of marriages. And she's now working with divorced women. Um, she's kind of building up a a program for that. She went and got her master's in psychology. Uh, so, and that, I just didn't really describe the conversation is very funny, uh, and lively, Uh, Time that we had, despite some of the subject matter. I just, uh, it was very good. Very, very good. And I know that listeners will really enjoy it. So that's the most recent episode. Um, And patrons of the show get two such episodes at least per month, and access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, which is a fantastic little community. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, it's $5 a month. And if you really can't afford that, that's fine. You can email me. There is a sliding scale. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Okay. Back to the episode.
1: So yeah. like, And, and then like, what if then we took it a little further? Cause I, I don't want to annihilate change. Sometimes does have to happen incrementally. And when we talk about the body of Christ, Now might be the time for us to start actually like working together across the aisle of denominations and Protestant and Catholic and all of this, because there's so much that each of these viewpoints has to offer, like what we seek, we will find if we go into these looking for the positive. um, And I'm not saying that there hasn't been terrible, terrible abuses happening across the board in the Catholic church, Southern Baptist denomination, like it's, it's rampant, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. <clears throat> and also the,
0: abuses happen anytime, any organizational anytime. setting where adults yes. are alone with children, Boy Scouts, yeah. I mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera, Yeah,
1: I mean, it's really widespread. It but, is unfortunately, I mean, but we, now you're
0: really speaking my language. I'm starting yeah. to think you did some opposition research on me on how to get me on your side
1: uh, <laughs> by
0: bringing up this, ecumenism stuff but please go on
1: yeah so the metaphor that i started kind of having this this sort of image in my mind a few years ago and this was i think pre-2016 2016 2016 is just sort of like one of those
0: it's a flashpoint year let's be honest there is a there is (laughs) in american christianity there is a pre-2016 post-2016 i think that will be a very it'll be a significant elbow in yeah. the, and then there will be a 2020 because of COVID. Yep, Those will exactly. be the two inflection points. And unfortunately, from a data perspective, we won't be able to see very clearly the effects of what will inevitably be an evangelical doubling down on Trump, because mm-hmm. I think it will be obscured by the COVID-19, you know, just messing with all systems and forms of everything. Yeah. We, we won't we just won't have a very good look at it. But if there hadn't been covid that would have been very interesting to look at. And maybe there are people, you know, things like church attendance won't, won't be a very good indicator of that. So there's maybe there's other ways and smart people who do that kind of research will be able to get at it.
1: Yeah. We're going to figure this one out. Body of Christ is not going anywhere anytime soon. Oh, that's Um, for sure. You know, survived a lot. Two thoughts kind of connected to this. The one, the metaphor kind of going back to that, the body of Christ metaphor is that if we look at, um, you know, it, Corinthians, we kind of get some people are a hand or an eye or a foot. What if we looked at it more like some traditions are the bones of the body of Christ? They provide the structure, they uh, provide kind of that helping us stand upright. They, they give us a skeletal system. And then maybe another tradition is the muscle. Maybe they're the ones that are the ones that are doing more uh, justice-oriented, whereas the, the skeletal ones are more maybe uh, structure-oriented. Our, our muscular traditions are doing and justice-oriented. And then the skin, what if these are those traditions that are about beauty and charisma and um, giftedness and things like that, and more vi- maybe the more visible ways. There's just lots of different ways to explore what the body of Christ looks like and then how that translates into our daily lives as we have to start finding ways to talk to each other and to get along. We're gonna You're making me think each- of
0: the book Streams of Living Water by Richard Foster, mm. who is a Quaker. He's mm-hmm. better known for his book Celebration of Discipline. Yes, right? But he wrote this really cool book called Streams of Living Water. And in fact, the his son runs a podcast that um, Foster's involved in this thing called the Renovare Institute
1: yes oh I love that yeah
0: and so his son runs that podcast and hosts it and they did a series on the book and and, and the the argument in the book is basically he goes through the major denominational strands of Christianity and he just says each of them sort of focuses on one aspect of Christ's life and teaching and Christian mm-hmm. theology. They, all, they they each have all of them to some degree, but you can really, if when you, when you step back, you really see sort of the distinctions. And he's like, we just need all of it. Like, yeah, we, we should yeah. not pretend that our stream has a lock on what's most important or whatever, but it does have something to offer. And, yeah. and then also this is what we have to learn from this other stream. I'm going to put a link to uh, that podcast series, in the notes people want to listen because they do an episode per stream basically with Richard Foster. Very I well done. Yeah. Pretty, pretty short, maybe a better introduction than just reading the book. Although you could of course look the book up, but yeah. So I don't, what do you think about that kind of angle on what you're saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I need to go and look into that. I, uh, it's been many years since I looked at Renovare, uh, ran across their organization, gosh, a long time ago. So I'm really glad to hear that there's still yeah, uh, producing content and um that's exciting. So I'm going to have to go look look into that. Thank you.
0: You also in your dissertation, you look at attachment through a trinitarian lens. Now we you, we've talked about the Trinity for a second here. Mm-hmm. Basically just it there is some sort of hierarchy between God and man, but that's really not that's it and I I think you go quite a bit more into detail and I'm I'm really curious uh what that stuff is.
1: Yeah. It's been a minute since I wrote that chapter. <laughs> and I remember as I was writing it, I was like in a constant state of mind-blowing awe and wonder.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah.
1: It was, oh man, there's some very, very interesting work out there on the Trinity. And I think that, you know, obviously we don't see the word Trinity in scripture. Or we don't, it's a, it's an idea based on, what we see in scripture, I believe the Trinity is real, that God is triune. Like God is, as creator seems to kind of like the number three. There's a lot of threes that we see.
0: There's that semiotics degree. Yeah. <laughs> signs so, and symbols.
1: Signs and symbols. Um, they're everywhere. All you got to do is look for them. And so, gosh, there's, there's people out there that, that say all this way better than I do. And this is a really tough concept to try to explain, too. I've heard lots of different metaphors for the Trinity, like an egg. You have the shell, the yolk, and the white, or water being in the three different forms that water can be in, gas, solid, and liquid. But for me, the metaphor that made things come even more alive for me was this flatland metaphor. And there's this guy named Abbott who wrote a book called Flatland. It's a little... It's a short book, and I'm using his metaphor in a way that I don't know that he would appreciate or not. I'm not sure, <laughs> um, but but it made sense to me. And I had this buddy in college who used this metaphor for me, and he said, "In Flatland, everything is two dimensional. So, like, imagine even now, if you can, like, grab a piece of paper and a pen and draw some stick figures." and we'll say okay this piece of paper here is is two dimensional and there are these flat beings on this piece of paper and i know in physics and all we could say okay well the paper does actually have a third dimension it has the thickness right it's just very whatever. thin right, right? Yeah. but just roll with me <laughs> yeah. so if if i look at my hand in relation to that piece of paper my hand is very much three dimensional and if i touch three of my fingers to that piece of paper from the perspective of that little stick figure what will they see they're going to see three separate points in their little flatland. But really, those are three of my fingers that are attached to my hand, that are attached to my arm, that are attached to my body, which is this whole like, oh my gosh, wow, there's all these mind-blowing things about a body that my little stick figure in flatland has no oh, frame of reference for.
0: I really like this a lot.
1: Right? It's, and, and so it's just so beautiful because when I think about the Trinity from that perspective, Number one, it frees me up from having to ha- have all this figured out. Like I can yeah. just be human for a minute and recognize that there's a lot there. You know, I've got these limitations. My brain has limitations, but that God is knowable. I can know God. I can know those, those three little points maybe in my little flatland mm. and, <laughs> um, That until I exit flatland into the next dimension.
0: Well, I just briefly, I love the intellectual humility of that, right? Because people spend their entire lives trying to figure out one theological concept or one psychological, you know, whatever, and they die and they don't know if they got it right or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, just it's no guarantee that you're going to even solve it, even if you dedicate your whole life to it. And so recognizing our limitations mm. seems to me to be kind of a precondition for sanity. Oh, um, my gosh. You right? know, like if you don't know your own <laughs> limitations, then you're just going to waste your life. And so yeah. I love the idea of, yeah, I've got my three points and my on my flat paper, and I'm sure it is much bigger. Whatever it is, it's much bigger than that. But that doesn't mean I don't have my three points, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And this is, again, like just... Showing you uh, by, by that pure example, the power of story and metaphor, when we can explain um, and give not just an intellectual assent, but a visual, a, an emotional experience with all this, when all of that comes together, that's really powerful. You're not going to forget Flatland. I guarantee it. Everybody listening to this, you're going to remember Christ is the, uh, what do we say? Christ is the heart. We are the capillaries. You're going to, you're going to remember that and you're going to remember Maybe. Flatland. Yeah. and you're not I going think to Flatland's
0: remember- better than, than my capillary <laughs> joke, but sure. I do like the heart blood vessels thing. That's very cool. Right,
1: though, isn't it? And so this is, this is the, oh, I don't know. This is why I've, I give my life to this because if I can capture, my, my son is about to turn eight years old. He gets this stuff. He understands. He understands in some ways that I don't. And he blows my mind every now and then with the stuff that he says. Because he's still so, he hasn't been as traumatized maybe as an adult has. Because trauma is what disconnects us from our ability to connect the dots. And to see these bigger pictures. And to have the freedom to have curiosity and, and imagination around these really, really important, meaningful uh, things that we are kind of here to to think about. And if we can capture our imagination and rediscover kind of that innocence of a child, and doesn't that sound like Jesus right there? Like you, you need to become as a child. And I think that's a lot of what he meant is recapturing this awe and this wonder and this imagination and curiosity. about. Well, and he
0: also chose to speak almost exclusively about God and the kingdom of heaven in metaphors, also yes, known as exactly. parables.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, he said yeah.
0: very little didactically.
1: Yeah, yeah. And know? it drove people crazy and they got really yep. upset with him. You're we like, just speak plainly, Jesus. And I think, I wonder if he kind of got a little frustrated when he had to really lay it out. <laughs> like, all right, guys, here's right. what I'm talking about. Like, come on, go with me there. It's so but-
0: interesting. <laughs> it's like kids also, that that might be another angle on childlike faith is that children are maybe a lot more open to metaphor than adults mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we want to master and control our environment because yeah. we are more aware of our own death we're more aware of the scarcity of resources and we have a a low a low humming anxiety about those things at all times mm. that children don't mm. have yeah. and and so yeah and there's so there's like some Connections to capitalism there that are interesting And right? you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a total capitalist in terms of Like the the raw structure Of the market determining the price As opposed to some entity Controlling the price or a barter system Or something but I'm talking about The indulgent capitalism Not, the, mm-hmm. not just the uh, I just feel like people throw around Capitalism a lot uh, Especially on Twitter and I think like I don't even know which type of capitalism you're talking about Anyway, that's a that's a little pet peeve of mine. But um, <laughs> I do think that there's something about adulthood that makes us less open to these metaphors.
1: Yeah, I really feel that especially for for the future and, and how we're going to function as the body of Christ in this new landscape that we find ourselves in as we're moving toward more inclusion, more, you know, I, and this is what I hope. I This is what I hope I see. I hope I don't see more of the same. Um, And maybe I'm a little idealistic, but you know, this move toward a more where we're not just picking apart verses in the Bible, but we're reconnecting the dots. We're looking at it from the bigger picture. We're sort of redeeming it in a way because it's been so weaponized. And this is going to have to happen if we're going to stop traumatizing people within church. We've got to really rethink some of our toxic theologies and really uh, do some painful work of sucking some poison out (laughs) of those wounds. Yeah. And it's our work to do. It's our work as, as uh, church leaders, as,
0: as co-creators.
1: Yeah. As, as the co-creators of what I really believe could be a beautiful new world but we're going to have to take a back seat in some ways to others who have a different perspective. Yeah, th- there's just there's a lot that I could say ab- about that like
0: Well, that's fine. I, but, I want I want to actually pause you because we're getting dangerously close to getting to our final topic here in a right? natural <laughs> organic way of moving forward, but I want to get one more element in the conversation before sure. we get to healing and that is the abusers themselves because mm. no mm. actual plan forward that has no no way of dealing with and helping to heal abusers will work right it's uh we can't simply just screen people and then send them off to you know b- before they do anything wrong uh, send them right, to camps uh, or something, right? No. So so one of the actually other interesting things about your dissertation that I haven't seen as much elsewhere is you really try and uh, address what it is that abusers get out of the process of spiritually abusing people. And so obviously, for, for obvious reasons, a lot of the literature is focused on victims and survivors. As these it should are be. Often, yeah, of course, as it should be. And these are often your clients, especially if you're going into one of these fields, Right. But like with child abuse and, and sexual abuse and whatever, there are also fields of study dedicated to helping the perpetrators to not perpetrate again, right? And yeah. so that helps society and helps them heal. And I think that kind of full orb for forgiveness is one of the things that I find most beautiful about mm-hmm. Christian theology as well. And so there's a mm-hmm. theological angle here, too. Yes. So let's, let's set a little bit of the stage of this other category of mm-hmm. healing that needs to happen. These abusers themselves. So yes. in your mind, based on your research and whatnot, what, what does it do for people who are doing, who are committing the abuse?
1: So people who are abusing others are often not aware, not consciously often, not always. Some people are very consciously aware of what they're right.
0: doing. Yeah. But of but course, a lot of people lot don't of times, know that they're doing harm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They, and that's where this is where the work falls to building self-awareness, doing your own healing work, because people who have been hurt are going to hurt other people until that wound is tended to.
0: Well, and the the example I gave earlier of, you know, the person in the Bible study, uh, rather than encouraging the lament as biblical, you know, band-aiding it over with, well, all things work out for good in, in God's timing or whatever. That person does not think that they're being spiritually abusive, right? right. but that person has not learned to be comfortable with lament in a Christian setting.
1: Right. Right. So what it boils down to is everybody doing their healing work and really pausing on any kind of leadership, any kind of teaching role until they have addressed their own woundedness and their own trauma and I'm talking everybody, all of us. And even if you don't consider yourself to be in a leadership position or anything like that, like we all need to do our healing work. We need to do the work to become people who are educated around our own trauma so that we know, oh, wow, when I say this, what I'm actually doing is projecting my own shit onto somebody else. Oh, right. maybe I shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, maybe maybe spiritual bypassing isn't helpful. Maybe positive vibes only is spiritual bypassing or all things work together for the good is using a verse in a way that's damaging to somebody. <laughs> yeah, also like,
0: out of context. Of and the out of context. <laughs> we,
1: and so it's, right. what it comes down to is everyone doing their work. Now, now I have to put a big asterisk on that because... What that requires is a letting go of power because what I'm describing could be considered somewhat radical because I would almost even request mega church pastors, any pastor, take a step back and get some therapy before proceeding. And that, that what, what happens in the meantime? Oh, what happens to the church in the meantime? I don't know. I don't know. But isn't it worth it? For you to take the time to be sure that you are healed or healing, none of us are really gonna arrive, right? This isn't right what that's about. But to to investigate yourself, to look inward, to look and see and be aware of your own psychological patterns and responses. Why can't you have a conversation around white supremacy? Why does it why do you get so angry? Why can't you handle uh, talking about another political viewpoint with someone without feeling rage bubbling up in your body, right? right? But so you know, I,
0: I do want to, I still want to hammer a little bit more on what's going on,
1: yeah, yeah, in the so, mind
0: and body of the abuser. Yeah.
1: So what's happening is they're getting a dopamine hit from controlling another person. That's really what it boils down to. There. Now, what about? So
0: <laughs> I don't, I don't doubt that for people who, in some sense, get off on control. That that's what's happening. But I would say, like, for instance, the, the spiritual bypassing example of the, the Bible study member simply being uncomfortable with lament, that doesn't seem to me to be about control. To me, it, that seems about nah, – no, I would describe it yeah. more as avoiding anxiety.
1: Right. So So by, by wanting to avoid their own anxiety, they want to control the response of the other person. Well,
0: they, they do end up controlling the person, but the primary motivation as I would understand it would be completely internal. So when I, if, if, if you say to me, they get a dopamine hit from controlling someone else, what I I take that to mean the dopamine hit comes from the act of their person over another person. Yes. Whereas the person who's bypassing and saying, well, I is is just uncomfortable with lament. There the the operative thing that's going on with them is completely internal. It has nothing to do with the other person. It's just, "Oh, I'm feeling icky when I hear someone lament." Yes. So yes. I I need to they're they're speaking basically when they say all things work together for good, they're talking to themselves, not the Correct. other person, right? Correct. So yeah. I'm and I I tend to be kind of suspicious of Models and, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not accusing you of this, but models that exclusively look at power or control like, you know, exclusively Marxist lenses, for instance, on any topic or whatever. I think it's one very helpful and, of course, very un- overlooked in more conservative circles. And, of course, there is a ton of that power control stuff that is going mm, on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. M- to my mind, it's there are a wider set of internal states that are causing these things than just people who are power or control hungry. Sure. Uh, Of course those, those people often rise to leadership positions though. That's worth saying. That's where, yeah, that's
1: where it all kind of ends up. No, you're right. The motivations for folks and why they spiritual bypass or why they, uh, you know, all, all the different, enter enter the fill in the blank and motivation that's what i'm asking people to do that's what i'm saying like is look at the motivations look at why if that's what you tend to do is like just just ask why and and i'm not even saying this like from a place of judgment i because when folks are doing this it's because they're hurting when um right. you know now people with full blown narcissistic personality that maybe they are more sociopathic right um you know that's kind of you have to treat
0: those people differently they're they're basically right, right. incapable of doing this kind of work and and NPD has like very low rates of success exactly sadly right, uh, of, right. of people's prog- the prognosis is very bad but that's also not most leaders so. It's, you know, we have to be really careful when we get into personality disorders. Yes. That is the extreme pathological version that it's very hard to come back from. Like I myself deal with some narcissism. I think if you start a podcast, let's say you start three podcasts in a four year period, you might deal with a little bit of narcissism. (laughs) Okay. But I don't have pathological narcissistic personality disorder where I can't hear criticism, uh, where everybody in my life is a tool for my own vacuity that I'm trying to fill because yeah. I have no yeah. sense of self. Right. Like right. that's not, that doesn't describe me. Right. Uh, and I, and I'm, I i do not think I'm just being, uh, you know, kind to myself. I do. I, I do have some narcissism. I do have some of that tendency uh, for sure. And I'm aware of it, but that's, yeah, there, there's almost like two categories of people here. And I think that if, if it can be determined that someone has a personality disorder and they're in leadership, they ought to never be in leadership again. Full stop. If you get that diagnosis, you are not in this denomination. A diagnosis of NPD means you will never be ordained. Yeah. You can do other things. But that's like a once you once you sexually abuse one child, you never it's done. are yeah, you can yeah. you can do yep. other things you can work with sexual abusers you can do tremendous things with your life, but you're not going to be around kids anymore right like yeah. that's just the that that's kind of where I see the so then there there's sort of two sets of policies right mm-hmm. for the truly um pathological and then the the much larger percentage of people who just struggle right.
1: Yeah, and since we don't, you know, most people with NPD are never going to get a diagnosis because sure. they won't go get diagnosed. Right. Right, but right, right. um, you know, there there's a list of diagnostic criteria that you can find from uh, like the DSM five and other, you know, there, so you can
0: an elder board could make a educated guess. You should absolutely. never treat like it like a true see, diagnosis. But yeah, yeah,
1: like if you see these nine behaviors. Or even five of those nine behaviors right. or whatever. Like if, if someone's just a bully, like, okay, maybe they shouldn't be leading people. <laughs> like Let's just even start. There would be progress. But
0: how great would it be if a uh, if a board of directors or elders could lovingly go to a pastor and say, look, look, dude, here's this criteria. It's an objective criteria. We didn't write it. We see evidence of some of these things. A lot of people have narcissistic tendencies. That's not disqualifying. Would you be willing to go get an assessment to show that you just are a strong leader with strong opinions and that you don't have this thing? You know, like I don't know if that would work uh, certain denominations there, there are certain power differenti Now we're getting into weeds, but different denominations have different incentive structures and, and power relationships. So we were at a Presbyterian church for 10 years. The elders can fire the pastor in, in the Presbyterian church. The pastor doesn't get to fire the elders, mm-hmm. uh, but that's of course like at Mars Hill here in Seattle. Uh, right. Everybody was under Driscoll's thumb; he was the absolute leader, right. so they couldn't fire him, right? So, yeah. uh, how much power do you have anyway?
1: Yeah, that's and, yeah.
0: There's there's different uh, approaches then that require discernment.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and so yeah, I I think that it is um, it's going to take a special type of person to take care of redeeming abusive folks and that that is not my calling
0: (laughs) sure oh no no totally
1: but but maybe it is somebody who's listening maybe they you know maybe this is their thing because I my idealistic self I do believe that true freedom is going to set free not only the oppressed but also the oppressor and so when when, we've got this this abusive dynamic it 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 takes a lot within me to say this but I do want to see I would like to see those abusers get help and get healthy. Yeah. Um I mean that's the but, only real
0: solution. It right? is and Long-term. and then
1: but so if we could then prevent like their becoming abusive in the first place. Of course. You know that that would be ideal. Like that that requires a lot more um but I believe it could happen. I, I think that we... The that state- is
0: Okay, that's where I'm more with you on a kind of a sea change thing. I think that in certain circles of the American church, we actually have it set up where narcissistic personality disorder is a feature, not a bug, in terms of getting some of these jobs. Yep, yep. That, like, those are actually the people. And I think that this is another way of explaining Trump's appeal in Ooh. that world, is that... Actually, a lot of people want a pastor kind of like Trump. Yes. Uh, I was just listening to um, yesterday, I was listening to the latest Bad Christian podcast episode, and they had on Mark Driscoll's former PR guy from Mars Hill, the, mm-hmm. the massive megachurch that imploded here in Seattle and left a ton of devastation in its wake. Mm-hmm. And this guy, uh, you know, from his own words in that interview, does not understand how Mark hurt people. And Uh, appears to be the kind of guy who's okay with pastors like that. Uh, Even though he said also in the interview, I see a lot of Trump in Mark and vice versa, and I wouldn't want Trump to be my pastor. Mm -hmm. This man also continued to work for Mark at a PR level uh, during the period where he got himself set up in another city as a pastor. So I don't know that this was an interesting interview to say the least, but maybe not the clearest uh, example of saying that there are plenty of people for whom... They do want a narcissist in charge. They like being underneath that. They they love seeing that kind of power on display. And as long as they're in the good graces of that power, it gives them a feeling of belonging to a strong Mm -hmm. group or strong leader. You have to imagine that this is a a common feature with authoritarian leaders elsewhere, right?
1: Yes, very Uh, much And so so
0: in that sense, I think that there needs to be – we need a pretty different structural – situation so that that's no longer a feature and ends up being a bug that gets squashed right yes
1: yes Yes. but i don't know
0: i that's that's for people in sort of church development to to think about um so we're 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 wrapping up here ashley we i do think i i've got a pretty good sense of of your overall approach to avoid abuse in the future we've got we have some systemic ideas. A big emphasis on doing the personal work around your own story, trauma, etc., so that you don't pass it on to others. So, first of all, I- am I filling that in pretty good before we go to the indigenous black theology stuff?
1: Yes, yes, okay. thank you.
0: But I did want to end on this because, yeah, I mean, as we said, the Breonna Taylor ruling was two days ago, and it's a it's a moment of if not if not sheer hopelessness. Definitely a mourning over a system that has not been well enough designed to handle situations like this. Correct. Um, and so, you know, for instance, it might be the case, as my lawyer friend said, uh, the district attorney is operating on pretty good jurisprudential logic here, given the law. OK, oh, fine. So <laughs> could we change that law then? Right. Like so it, something is broken. Uh, something is broken here. But you pointed out something that I have been going back to time and again, especially in the last few years, as this stuff has been more front of mind. And that is that, like, the black church specifically, uh, and I know that there are uh, really great indigenous theologians. I'm just not as familiar with that. So I'm going to speak more about the black church. They have uh, continued since, especially I think of Dylan Roof, uh, the families of the murdered church attendees, Bible study attendees, forgiving him publicly, you know, seeking no retribution, like really instantiating Christ in their response, like immediately to, I wouldn't even require people. Like I wouldn't even tell people to be that way, but they did it of their own accord, just like true moral heroism. Mm. And I kept thinking when you were talking, I promise I'll give you a chance to speak here. (laughs) Of the the case of scripture, that not a single author of scripture was in a majority culture subgroup. They all were writing from the standpoint of the oppressed. The original Israelites are a tiny nation surrounded by massive nations that could come in and sweep them away at any point and do at multiple points in the narrative. The prophets of the Old Testament, once the israelites get a bit more power and security and become decadent they are the people in the minority challenging them on that right and from the prophets come christ and his and his ministry is inaugurated by quoting the prophets that the good news is here for the poor and the oppressed and the early church is persecuted by the roman empire you know on and on and on nobody in that chain has cultural majority power and so it's fitting in a sense then that we would see in these marginalized and persecuted communities something that looks a lot more like christianity to us yes if we have yes. the eyes to see it so Correct. that was kind of i guess i'm answering the question but i would yeah. like i know you have thought about this a lot too so anything else to add about um or just like what, what's been your experience Reading, you mentioned you've been reading indigenous Latin American black theologians. Tell us a little bit about that experience and and what you're finding in there in terms of a path forward,
1: yeah, yeah, well, when I say reading, I don't always mean a book
0: sure yeah I mean, yeah,
1: <laughs> so um, oh, I want to be really careful not to white center here and make myself look like a hero, so I need to think through how I say this, but my my friends of color, my, particularly my women friends of color have shown me more of who Christ is than I probably ever would have deserved to have seen (laughs) because there's a, there's a grace, a humility, a resiliency there that is unparalleled that I've not, I've not seen before. And this idea, you know, kind of this, we we all want the same thing. We want uh, within the church, we want there to be unity. But we often want to skip over so many steps to get there. And what I'm learning is how to embrace righteous anger, how to lament. These are all things that I've learned from my, my Black and Indigenous friends. And I, you know, I, I feel a, a huge debt of, of gratitude to them because I, I don't know that I would have learned in another context Um, and embracing anger over abuse and how, how to, to do that in a way that is nonviolent, but also disruptive. And, and to me that, that is holy, that is sacred. And I think that for going forward, it is probably, it is time for us as, as white folks to, let black and indigenous folks take the lead. And so that's kind of what I've done in my own life. I've really tried to sit under the teaching of black and indigenous men and women to the extent that I can do so without disrupting their space, because there is um, just my mere presence can be disruptive and not in a good way. So there's also
0: kind of a fatigue.
1: Yeah. Like I, you
0: know, everybody wants everybody on their podcast, you know, in some sense that that is uh, a benefit of being able to talk to another i don't know if you i mean you have gavi gavi gavila,
1: yes, my husband is, is hispanic okay <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean
0: you're white passing, I figured you were probably white other than that, so but yeah. in in one sense, we're sort of offloading some of that uh, exhaustion exactly. in, a, in a good way. We,
1: we have to do the work. Like, and that that's the other thing. Like, yes, we can learn from them, but that's not their job. Like, it's not their job to teach us. It's our job to learn and to heal <laughs> and to do that in ways that are honoring To these marginalized communities and to these people of the global majority, like if we're going to look at it, really. um, But of course,
0: some of them, it is their job to write and sell books and speak. And we should be hiring them, (laughs) bringing them to our conference, to our church. Right. You know, so that is a way there are people who who are ordained and do do this kind of teaching. That is their ministry and their living. And that's a way to sit under their teaching is to hire them.
1: Please, please do. Either
0: full time or you know, a traveling speaker or, you know, whatever the situation might be.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. And so, you know, there's, there's all these ways that we can do this, but it has to start with us individually in um, becoming people, people that are, are doing the healing work, doing our own healing work so that we can even have the, the presence and understanding to, to listen. And truly that that's the main thing that is asked of us by most of my friends of color is just like, man, gosh, if white folk would just listen. Just listen. Then we go do our own work. We don't burden them, our friends of color, with, you know, it's not their job to make us feel better. It's not their job to tell us, oh, but you're one of the good white people. Um, You know, this is not. No, no, no. That is why we still need to go to other white folk and figure this thing out together. Because some of us, some of us have some semblance of power in a structural thing, (laughs) whatever that looks like, to to start making some changes where. Uh, and that kind of is our responsibility. And to make space and to uh, to dream together. And But there's a lot of repair work that has to be done. There is so much repair. Um, there's got to be... We can't skip over the steps. We can't just get in our little time machines and travel to whatever year when we have finally defeated racism (laughs) like we have to do the anti-racist work and that is is long long work that is a marathon and it's complicated and it's painful but it's the right thing to do and so we can't let our own discomfort stop us we we may get yelled at by our friends we might lose family members Um, This is costly. Jesus said taking up our cross and following him is a costly endeavor and anti-racist work. I believe is part of truly following Jesus. If we say that we're following him, uh, there's some characteristics about us that need to start changing really quick. And it's possible. I, I believe that it's possible. I, (laughs) <laughs> there are days when I'm like, okay, that's it. Just burn it all to the ground and start over. And maybe that's what needs to happen and what will happen. I don't know. But we we have to start somewhere. And we have to start by looking at ourselves, doing our own healing work, aligning ourselves with others who are doing similar work in healing, being willing to be uh, to sit with discomfort, to learn the difference between discomfort and danger. We we often don't know that there is a difference. And that uh, just because you're being questioned doesn't mean that you're in danger. It may feel that way. You may have a trauma response that makes you feel that way. You need to investigate that and sit with that. So, yeah, there's, there's so much work to be done, but I believe we can do it. I think we can. And the, the time is now and we need to be really serious about this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy.
0: Ashley, thank you so much for your time today. I will have a link to your website for your your practice, your private practice. Thank also, you. people can read the dissertation, right? It's, it's open yeah, source.
1: It is. It's free um, in the uh, George Fox University Library.
0: Okay. So I will get a link to that up as well if people want to read it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks to Ashley for being with us this week. If you'd like to become a patron, you can at patreon.com slash Dan or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. I think I forgot to actually mention that in the middle of the episode. The link that that links in the show notes, also in the show notes, Ashley's website and her dissertation, as well as a link to that streams of living water podcast series that came up in our conversation through the Renovare podcast and the Renovare Institute. All right. Happy holidays, everyone. Merry Christmas, most of you who celebrate Christmas. And uh, we'll see you, I think, next week. Might take a week off. Not positive. All right. Later.